This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Geraldine Brooks, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. It is really, it's such a a privilege and a pleasure to be speaking with you in person. We are big fans, everybody. The whole Better Reading team is um, is super excited. Geraldine, for those that don't know, is a Pulitzer Prize winning and best-selling Australian author and journalist. She began her career at the Sydney Morning Herald and worked for the Wall Street Journal covering global issues. In 2006, her novel March won the Pulitzer Prize. Her novels, People of the Book, Caleb's Crossing and The Secret Chord, have all been New York Times bestsellers. Her latest novel, Horse, is another sweeping historical about an iconic American racehorse that reckons with centuries of American history and racism. Geraldine, I want to tell you this story. A few years back now, I was invited to Pulitzer over in New York. Um, I think it's at, uh, what's the big university? Columbia. Columbia. And I, they took me down to the archives. It was so special. They took me down to the archives and they pulled out your book. They pulled out, it was Sebastian Smee, another Australian, who was writing for the Boston Globe, I think at the time, the art critic, and an illustrator of which I can't remember his name, and an Australian illustrator. And I really, sitting in the archive, looking at this, I had to pinch myself. How lovely. <laughs> Extraordinary. Congratulations. I mean, what a accolade. How has the Pulitzer changed your life? Well, it brings you more readers, which is fantastic. And to be honest, it brings you a few male readers (laughs) because men like a sticker on a book. They do indeed. I agree with that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There's no downside to it. People said, oh, that'll be so much pressure. And I said, are you nuts? It's the opposite. You know, it's like, I'm done now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anything else after this is gravy. But what was so fantastic about it was that it was so entirely and absolutely unexpected. It had never crossed my mind. It does, of course, as a journalist. And um, my husband had a Pulitzer for his reporting in the United States, and we had been finalists jointly for a Pulitzer um, for our Middle East coverage uh, during the first Gulf War. So it was, you know, it's on your mind when you're a journalist, but I'd never, ever, it would have been, you know, beyond the ambit claim of my imagination to think about getting it for a novel. Mm, It really is something very special. I want to talk about, go back to where it all started. I have memories of you with the first book, I think it is, uh, I think Nine Parts of Desire. And I I was working um, what was back then Grace Brothers or Meyer in Chatswood, and I think you came in. 
Oh, probably, yes. Would you yeah. have done that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, we'd go around and sign yes. books. And uh, yeah, no, that was definitely um, my first experience of writing a book. And writing, you know, basically writing anything longer than 3,000 words was a long piece for me in those days. But it was, you know, that was an entirely a journalist book about my lived experiences among the Muslim women of the Middle East. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very different... Uh, animal to fiction for sure. Yeah. When I've been telling people that you've been coming in, that you're going to come in and we're going to record a podcast, people say to me all the time, and I've heard this many times, she's a very intelligent writer. Well, that's very nice. (laughs) It is very nice. And it got me thinking about writing. I mean, you know, I talk to so many writers, but an intelligent writer is, is that the story or the craft? I have no idea. I'm trying to get my mind around what would be a dumb writer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. You know, and so I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to think what the opposite of that would be. And anyway, I'm glad I'm not it, whatever it is. <laughs> I think it's about perception and feeling human behavior and the emotional side to a story. Certainly. I, you know, I think the desire and the willingness to immerse yourself in other possibilities and other lives. And I guess that comes down to uh, an almost morbid curiosity about the human condition. I think those are all necessary, you know, conditions to sit down and try and tell a story because what would be the point otherwise? Um, Um, you know, I suppose there's a point of, in deeply exploring one's own psyche. So that's one way, I guess, of going about it, but that wouldn't really interest me so much. I want to know what it's like to be somebody else and to have other experiences. And then to do that, I suppose, intelligently, you have to do the work. You know, you have to delve into everything you can possibly learn about how such people lived and what they thought and what they wrote if they were, you know, privileged to be literate and to leave a record of their life, which rules out quite a lot of the world because so many people are deprived of literacy and women entirely until quite recently. You know, when it, it surprised me when I was writing my book, Caleb's Crossing, that there were no decent journals by women until the 1800s, really. Um, or at least, you know, there were a couple in the uh, mid-18th century, but very, very few. Women just didn't either have the education to write or the time. Mm-hmm. Because they were busy raising the children. And doing every other thing. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about, well, this is a question, I guess. Do you think your time as a journalist and your time as a foreign correspondent really brought your style of fiction writing to life? Like it gave it something that, you know, people are calling intelligent. It made it possible. Mm. I'm still, I, sh- I should say, feeding off the fat of the intense experiences that I had particularly in the decade of being a foreign correspondent, often covering conflicts and encountering people at the absolute nadir of their life and seeing how they coped with that. What does, what does crisis do to a person? And the answer is so various because some people are led to their best self and some to their worst. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any of us is in a position to predict who will be. Mm. in that moment when everything's stripped away. Mm. Um, 
And so and it keeps repeating itself, doesn't it? Well, it does. You know, that's that's the tragic thing. Mm. There's never any shortage of mm. people in crisis and there's never any shortage of places to go to see the ill effects of feckless foreign policy. I've got a, for those who listen to the podcast, they know that my parents are Lebanese Australian. My parents came out in the 50s um, and they came and went for a few years until they decided that this is their place now. I have visited Lebanon over the years and what astounds me, and, and you'll know about this, is the resilience, even in war-torn environments, all people want to do is live. All they want to do is raise their children. They want to feed their children, feed their families. And I look at them when I'm there in particular, and even now through social media, when that Beirut bomb went off, my cousin posted a photo of her daughter's birthday. You, you just want to live a life, right? And this is something that people don't understand about being a foreign correspondent, that you see it all the time. When you just watch the report on the news, mm. it looks like the whole world is on fire. Mm. And yet it's not. People are still washing the nappies and hanging them out to dry and feeding the chooks. And birthing the babies. And, yeah, all that. But also the really quotidian day-to-day life is going on mm. in the midst of the shelling and uh, the shooting And it is an extraordinary thing. Mm. And it's one of the things that makes it such a privilege to do that work, to see the resilience of people. And I remember going to uh, Lebanon for the first time right after the civil war ended and the place was, you know, rubble. Mm. But my goodness, people had learned how to live a life there. Mm you could get the New York Times and a plate of sushi, mm-hmm. <laughs> even mm-hmm. though you you know sitting in a place where there's still a, a rocket shell coming through the you know Ottoman ceiling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. Somebody told me when I was there, the Lebanese, um, what do they say? The Lebanese party, like there's no tomorrow. And they live like there's no tomorrow. Mm. They just live in the moment and the present. And uh, you know, people have had to do that. I always say with Lebanon in particular, and you might have a view on this, but it is like the best house on, on the worst street. Uh-huh. That's very interesting. Yeah. 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 Okay, I want to talk about um, growing up um, and how you came to writing or how you came to live in the United States. So you grew up in Ashfield. Well, I was born in Ashfield. I left there when I was five. My parents moved to Concord. Mm-hmm. So they had been doing up a double terrace house and renting rooms in it to pay the mortgage and then they finally had enough to buy a little federation house on Burwood Road in Concord. Yeah, I know exactly where that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that was where I really grew up. Yeah. yeah, and you went to school, you went to Bethlehem? I did. First I went to St Mary's Concord and then to Bethlehem Ashfield. Right, I went to St Scholastica. All right. Yeah, we're neighbouring. <laughs> I haven't moved very far from home, I'm yeah. in Petersham. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you know where I am. Okay, so talk to me about how a, how a young woman, a young person goes from Ashfield 
to winning a Pulitzer Prize. There's a lot in between, I know. But did the love of writing start at a young age? How was how formative was it in your early years? The love of reading, really. Um, my parents were both great readers. We didn't have a lot of material stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. You know that neighbourhood. You know what the you mm, absolutely. know. Absolutely, it's a lower middle class life. But books, books were everything. You know, we would go to the library every Saturday, and we'd all come back with our stack. And my, that my parents really rated reading so highly had a profound effect. My dad would read to my sister and me every night until we could read for ourselves. And my mother was just full of literature. She she lived it, you know. So she, you know, we would make a game out of learning Shakespeare. <laughs> soliloquies and you know and so it was reading and and then those voices in my head then kind of bled into my play so I'd make up stories about people in my play and I was always narrating this long ongoing saga and that was my favorite game I was a pretty solitary kid and mm. I'd play in the garden and I'd have characters made out of flowers and I'd move them around and had big geopolitical Plots. <laughs> so, was your, was your father American? Yes, he was. Yeah. He and was what was American. he doing in Concord? Well, that is a long story, and you can read all about it in my sister's book, which is called <laughs> Daddy Cool. Okay. okay. Her name is Darlene Bungie. Yeah. And she's a biographer. She's written biographies of Arthur Boyd and John Olson. And then she decided to take her toolbox as a biographer and turn it on our dad because he was an enigmatic figure to us. Mm. He had been a big band singer in Hollywood in the 30s, and he was a very handsome young man, and he was a hot mess, and he had a personal life that could fill a book and does. <laughs> and he got into a lot of trouble. And long story short, he had to get out of the States. And um, he came on tour with a band that was touring across Australia. And they got as far as Adelaide and the band leader absconded with their pay. And uh. so he was stuck. And he had to earn enough money to get back to the States. And while he was doing that, he came to really love and admire Australia and the mu- musicians that he was working with. And the way he tells it, um, the turning point for him was they'd been playing a gig the night Paris fell to the Nazis. And after the gig, the Australian guys said, we're going to enlist in the, in the morning. We're going to go and fight these Nazi bastards. And my dad says, well, I, I'll enlist with you. And he enlisted in the Australian army, even though he was a, a U.S. citizen and basically an illegal immigrant at this mm. point because mm. he'd overstayed his visa. And, uh, and so off he went with the uh, AIF. And he really never looked back. Mm. Mm. So is it a coincidence that you then married an American? It's a total coincidence. Is yeah. it? Although, you know, a lot of people in our family do tend to marry foreigners. <laughs> <laughs> Runs in the family. It sort of runs Genetic. in the family. I mean, I'm not criticising the good old Aussie bloke, but, no, no. but the foreigners seem to make the moves quicker. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. Um, I, I was lucky enough after a few years working as a journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald because journalism was what I, I wanted to be. I wanted to be a reporter from a very early age. And after a few years at the Sydney Morning Herald, I got a wonderful scholarship named for Greg Shackleton, who was the reporter killed in East Timor. Mm-hmm. 
And I went off to the Columbia Masters Program to sort of hone my skills and to take a look around, as Australians like to do. Mm-hmm. And the plan was I would get my Masters and come straight back home and get on with my real life. Mm. But I met this charming, wonderful man called Tony Horwitz. And we were married. And then I met another not quite as charming and wonderful, but very useful man who was the recruiter for the Wall Street Journal. And I thought, I, I was still thinking, well, you know, I'll work for the journal for a year and see what I can learn. And then I'll go back to Sydney and get on with my real life. Well, they did send me back to Sydney, but as a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. So I was a, a foreign correspondent at home, mm-hmm. which was a fantastic thing. And they'd never had anyone here. So I was able to use it as a way to explore my own country and go up to remote Aboriginal communities and deliver supplies by barge through the Gulf of Carpentaria or go wow. on one of the last great cattle droves in Western Queensland. And inter alia, I'd go and talk to Keating about the economy, but that wasn't really what <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> what was getting me out of bed in the morning. And then that suddenly got a call from them saying, would you like to be the Middle East correspondent based in Cairo and covering 22 countries. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So uh, going back to the romance, I want to <laughs> pry a little bit there. So you were both students. Yeah. So you and Tony were both students. You met at Columbia. Because you both have stellar careers. So did you kind of grow up together, just in in a way, growing up through your careers? We were just really lucky that we found each other at, you know, a relatively young age. And yeah. I mean, the odds against us encountering each other were pretty high. But yeah, no, we... Uh, we worked and travelled together and, um, you know, he was incredibly accommodating to my career early on because I, I had the job offers and he, he, he would get a great job wherever we were and then, you know, he would leave it to follow me and uh, we, we made a joke about that. But uh, Both very accomplished writers. But in the end I followed him because he mm. wanted to spend more time back in the States and that was a big tactical error because once he got back there, I couldn't prize him out again. He turned out to be a more stubborn bugger than I was. <laughs> <laughs> and he felt probably more American than he did Australian. Oh, very much so. I mean, it's because he was he was a historian at heart and mm-hmm. he loved American history. And so when we 
left daily journalism and turned to book writing. That was his muse, American history, and the way its uh, its issues are so unresolved in the country. So his first uh, his first book in the states was uh, Confederates in the Attic, mm-hmm. and that was about the unfinished business of the American Civil War. And really, he predicted everything that we're seeing right now. Mm-hmm. What's it like having two writers in the one household? Like, what did daily life look like for you two? I think it was great. Mm. Uh, It was great when we were foreign correspondents because we both understood the difficulties Mm. and and the the highs, the highs and the lows of it, and we could help each other. Uh, Nothing ever left the house without the other one reading it. Is that right? Yeah, and uh, so – and then when we were book writers, it was fantastic because that – for me, the turn to fiction was because I had a baby and I didn't want to be going off on long, open-ended assignments uh, to dangerous places anymore. It was a way of being around for the kids and still having productive and, you know, work that would put food on the table, but to be present in their lives every day, which was such a, you know, a gift that a lot of people don't have when they're working. Yeah. Hideous hours. Yeah, yeah. I was listening to Jessica Lang, you know, that wonderful actor. She was talking the other day. I saw it on something on a talk show. And she said about raising her children as an actor, what she regrets the most is the assignments she did take, not the ones she didn't, the ones yeah. that took her away from her family. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. So I had the great privilege of just being one floor away, you know, and yeah. we could, you know, at first we could afford a sitter for four hours and by God, those were productive four hours. You know, Mm. I I was so focused because Mm. that was all I had. I want to talk about the shift between nonfiction and fiction because in a way you haven't walked away from nonfiction all that much, have you? Because really pretty much every book since your nonfiction has been fiction that's based on fact. Yes, yes. Right. I, I, I sort of joke that that's my laziness because you get a story that actually exists so you don't have to make up everything. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but you give it life. And I guess that goes back to what we were talking about, to empathy and intelligence. Did you find it difficult to write fiction initially? Uh, I had the two nonfiction books to sort of work, work my way up to it. And those were hard. I mean, Nine Parts of Desire, it took me six months to even get a clue about how to sustain a narrative. Mm. So I think that was the steepest learning curve. And then my second nonfiction book, Foreign Correspondence, which was kind of part memoir and part travel adventure story. Uh, And then it turned into um, basically a bit of a memoir of my father and um, his his mysterious significance. And um, because it was such a hybrid, I learned a lot about writing from Mm. that book. Mm -hmm. And so that was the, I guess that was the groundwork. That was my education to prepare me for the swan dive into making stuff up. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think without those two books first, uh, it would have been a lot harder. Mm. And so the first historical fiction was Year of Wonder. I'm just looking yeah. at the chronology. Yeah. I mean, it, and that was a huge bestseller, wasn't it? Eventually, yeah. yes. It was It was um, a little slow out of the gate because it was published in the week that uh, 9-11 happened. Ah, oh, right. Okay. And uh, it miraculously found its readers uh, and grew over time. So... Mm. Um, and it's still, you know, and mm. particularly because of the pandemic, 
has quite a life uh, in people's hands, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but that book, I had it had been marinating in my head because uh, we encountered this village where bubonic plague had come in the Peak District in England in 1665. On a, on a ramble, you know, uh, we had some rare time off and we were rambling in, uh, from pub to pub as you do on these beautiful rural paths mm. and, um, and saw a sign saying Plague Village and the story of what had happened there had just taken root in my imagination and I'd had 10 years to think about it. Yeah. And when I decided to try and write fiction, that was the story I decided to tell. But because I'd thought about it for so long, it went quite well, mm. <laughs> and it lulled me into a false sense of security mm. because it's never been like that since because I haven't had the luxury of 10 years of thought. Mm. Mm. It changes, doesn't it? Although, you know, I mean, you've had the luxury of almost every book. I mean, after that, you wrote March, and that won the Pulitzer Prize. People of the Book, which was a bestseller, I know, here in Australia. Caleb's Crossing, which is my favourite. Oh. Uh, so it goes on and on. Mm. What happens when you lose your partner who has been so integral in your creativity and your writing. How does that... <sighs> you know, I'm still change. trying to figure yeah. out what happens because I'm still not sure who I am without him, to mm. be honest. Mm. I hear you. It's... Uh, we were, All I can do uh, is embrace gratitude for what we had. Yeah. Because the truth is you can't stop. You've got two kids and they need you then more than they ever have so there's no just throwing yourself face down on the floor which is what you're inclined to do Mm -hmm. and I did get one incredibly salient piece of advice from a friend who'd also suffered a loss like that and she had got the advice from Ruth Bader Ginsburg who said you know do your work Mm. might not be your best work but it'll be good work and it'll be what saves you. Mm. So when I could finally, finally focus enough to get back to the novel, that turned out to be true. And I've been working like a maniac, you know, mm. because that's that's what I've got. And mm. so that's who I am right now is somebody who's working like a maniac. Mm. Mm. I'm sorry. It really it must be so difficult. I want to talk about identity. So an Australian living in America... And I'm talking about that because I I have struggled with my identity forever, you know. My girlfriends still say I'm Lebanese, you know. Well, what's wrong with that? Oh, nothing. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. And I embrace it. I would be totally embracing that, yeah. I I am totally embracing that. However, and I've talked about this on the podcast, when I did go to Lebanon, I've been a couple of times, my grandmother introduced me to all her friends as Cheryl, the Australian. And I said to her, no, 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 said that. You've got that wrong. I'm Lebanese. And she said, ah, look, <laughs> you know, where are you getting that from? So the problem I have, and I'm wondering if you feel the same way, is when I'm in Australia, when I'm in Sydney, I'm Lebanese and I'm very comfortable with that. And when I'm in Lebanon, I'm Australian. And I do feel a lot, a lot of the times that I belong in neither, but I belong in both. Do you feel that? No, I always feel Australian. You do? Yeah. How long have you lived in America? A long time, but it doesn't it doesn't change that for me. Yeah. I still see that place with an outsider's eye. Yeah. Uh, I've got that place being the US, United States. Yeah. yeah. 
I've got two American kids now, which was very careless of me. <laughs> and that that is, you know, that realizing that and that, you know, I kind of... Uh, I made a bit of a mess for myself because I don't want to put half a planet between me and my kids. They're mm. too important to me. Of course. Um, but I would, you know, I just, I love every step I take here. I can't wait to get back here. Yeah. Um, I am very drawn to things I don't know. It's like, you know, I don't know if you like this, but I always want to have a look in people's kitchen cabinets. And it's, Do you it, know, I love people's kitchens. <laughs> I love it. It is my most favourite thing is to snoop around, snoop around in people's kitchens. And my own is not very interesting to mm, me. Mm. And it's not that I'm not interested in Australian history, but honestly, our history is so sad. Yeah, it is. And it, and it, and it bites on me, on my heart, mm. in a more personal way. I mean, there's plenty sad about American history, to be sure. But it doesn't hurt to because you're it. not complicit? Well, you know, I said that about Caleb's Crossing and this was, you know, this was, be careful what you say because, so I said, you know, I'm carrying the guilt of what happened to the Aboriginal people mm. and still is happening and mm. unresolved. And I can, I can be a bit of a, uh, actually it's a Peter Carey expression, moral holiday with regard to the treatment of Indigenous people in America. And I'm writing about um, a, a Wampanoag, Caleb, and lo and behold, I find out that my grandfather, six back, almost certainly knew Caleb. Oh, wow. Yeah, because uh, his sister was married to the teacher right. who educated him in preparation for Harvard. Yeah, wow. There you go. So there's a connection. A big connection. So now I have to be guilty about that too. Yeah. Um, speaking of guilt, let's talk about that. How comfortable are you sitting in a country at the moment or living in a country at the moment that uh, has lost its way? Oh, it's so tragic to mm. me what's going on. And, you know, the fundamental problem is that there's a huge section of the country that is not interested in objective truth anymore. Mm. And what that has led us to mm. is a bunch of theocrats mm. running people's most mm. intimate lives. No, theocrats, you know, th this Supreme Court, mm. it's a bunch of ayatollahs. Mm. Mm. Uh, Ayatollah Coney Barrett. Yeah. And, uh, and they are just taking the country backwards at such a rapid clip. Mm. Women's rights, the climate, mm. uh, the role of any kind of humane government, mm. totally undermined. Mm. Do you know, I always, my biggest problem with um, conservatism is going back where? At what point do you stop? We want the life that we had, but at what point is we, that the we life want the that life had? that white men had? had. That's right. That's all. Yeah, that's right. But where do you stop at that? At which had? Well, you know, I that I blame Murdoch for this. Yeah. I really do. If you yeah. had to pick one mm. source of the poison that's infecting mm. the United that States. That Fox News is just repulsive, isn't it? It is, but people listen to those mm. bloviating mm. SOBs mm. and that's all they listen mm. to. Mm. And it's lies. They lie without 
remorse mm. and without consequence. Mm. Uh, I think we said before we started uh, recording, I told you that I spent a bit of time in the United States in San Francisco. You know, all the people that I, I'm with are, are liberal thinkers, but they too have that guilt now. They, it reminds me of Lebanon in a way that they're, all they're trying to do is live their life amongst this angst. Well, they you should know. try and do a bit more, I'd say. I mean, run for something. Mm-hmm. I'm on a, a town board because the, yeah. the Conservatives understood that it's at the local level that you can affect things and they took over. And well, so, that's what they did with the courts, didn't they? Well, they, that's that's the beginning of it. You know, if you yeah. get the state legislatures, you've got control over a lot in that country. And even at the local level, so I'm on the Conservation Commission and I'm battling for our mm. bit of the planet and my son... Mm-hmm. Is um, right now uh, f- has founded a nonprofit to get abortion medicine into uh, forced pregnancy states. Mm. You know, so you've got to do something. It's no good saying mm. it's all going. No, mm. I agree. I agree totally. Okay, so you're in Australia on a book tour. The book is Horse, a great review and great acclaim. I mean, I'm just wondering, we haven't really found any bad reviews about your books. Tell me about that. Oh, I could point you at a couple. <laughs> Can you? Yeah, no, um, I got played alive a couple of times in the New York Times. Yeah. So, um, but <laughs> not, the, not for this book, luckily. Not for this book. And when we first started talking about it with our community, people like, oh, I don't want to talk about racehorses. I don't like the way horses are being treated. I'm not sure if I'm going to read this book. And three weeks on, those same people have read and said, okay, well, it's not about that. It's well, not just about that. I wouldn't that. have. I no. mean, I, I don't like how. <laughs> no. I, I'm a I'm an animal uh, mm-hmm. rights person, and I I know how absolutely dire the treatment of equines in the racing industry is. That's not what this book is about. Um, no. And also, I wouldn't have been able to write this book, to be honest, if it hadn't worked out all right for this particular horse. Mm. This particular horse has a very dramatic life story, and I can tell you, spoiler alert, dies well looked after at a ripe old age. Mm. <laughs> but again, I mean, I think what you bring to it is is the empathy, the humanity, the intelligence. You know, you put that book down and you, I don't know, you just feel a little bit good <laughs> for the moment. I hope so. Yeah. Hope so. Uh, Geraldine, we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today. As I said earlier, it's been a privilege. Thank you for having me. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.